You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about Captain John Coxon and his raid on Santa Marta, but much more importantly we talked about the Piracy Act of 1677. That act turned John Coxon from a law-abiding privateer captain into an outlaw. And, in truth, it was really his own decision to continue his trade that made him a pirate, but that act also turned thousands of other English privateers into, well, frankly, for most of them, it turned them into unemployed privateers, except for those very few, like Coxon. So today we're going to stay with the English privateers in the post-Piracy Act world and John Coxon. This is episode 109, The Story So Far, Part 10. Immediately after word reached Port Royal of the Piracy Act of 1677, word began to spread all around the New World that the English were no longer allowed to accept French commissions. They weren't allowed to sail under French colors. And for that matter, they couldn't sail under Spanish or Dutch colors or any nation but England. But it was the French governor on Tortuga, Jacques Napevu, who was notorious for handing out commissions to anyone. Most of the English privateers who wanted to stay right with the law sailed off for the Bay of Campeche. They gave up their trade in privateering and decided instead to cut logwood. And most of the English did want to stay right with the law. The decision to turn to piracy was never taken lightly, and for good reason. Some pirates, a very, very small minority of them, managed to make a fortune and to retire quietly but most pirates were either arrested, in which case they would meet with the hangman, or they were killed. And in this late war period, the English became extremely effective pirate hunters. They hunted down any Englishman that was violating the new law, and they carried out their sentences on the docks of Port Royal. And when the war ended, the commissions dried up, and the Piracy Act of 1677 came through, and things settled down. At least from the point of view of those at the top. The problem is that Spain now had ships to spare, now that they weren't engaged in fighting a war, and she was able to focus her attentions on the logwood camps. Logwood poaching was illegal, 
after all, and in the eyes of Spain, it was as good as piracy. Plus, the Spanish knew full well that these logwood poachers were the very same pirates that had plagued them all throughout the war, and for many of these logwood cutters for years before the war. They busted up the camps, they chased down all of their ships, and they imprisoned or executed the cutters. And this might seem like a shrewd move on the part of Spain. The logwood poachers were cutting in to their potential profits, after all. But as we know, hindsight is twenty-twenty. What happens when you take thousands of young men, when you train them and give them the tools to kill and harm your enemies, when you allow them to make amazing amounts of money, which of course facilitates serious substance abuse problems, and what happens when you take away their sources of income? Nations all throughout history, since the dawn of time, have been extraordinarily careful to ensure that their soldiers were, after the fighting was done, given land and women and usually a pension. Because you trained these men to kill. You put them in life-or-death situations, and then you brought them back home. You had to reintegrate them into civilian life. We still have to do that in every nation across the world. In the post-Vietnam War era, the U.S. government really dropped the ball on this. There were tons of veterans with untreated PTSD or veterans missing limbs or those who were just angry about being drafted and sent into the jungle. And many of those veterans gravitated towards anti-government or anti-establishment groups. We're talking about the Black Panthers or the Weather Underground or any of the many, many militia groups that popped up all over the U.S. in the late 70s and early 80s. There are sociologists who have argued that it was this group of veterans who felt that their government had betrayed and abandoned them that breathed new life into the white power movement in the mid-80s. But the U.S. Army was smart enough not to leave these soldiers the guns that they had fought the Vietnam War with. However, the privateers, well, they already owned their own guns. They owned their own swords and their own ships. So what happens when you take away their income, but you don't take away the tools with which they earned that income? Obviously, they're going to put those tools to use. So all around the West Indies around this time, there was, right about 1680, this explosion of piracy. All of these pressures built up, and all over the Caribbean, Spanish and English and Dutch and French ships were getting raided by different groups of pirates. But today we're going to follow one group of former English privateers that were working in the Logwood camps, group would actually include John Coxon. And we know so much about that group because of a surgeon and a naturalist named William Dampier. He was born in England, and after he was married, he sailed for the New World to make his fortune. He intended to do so by joining up with the buccaneers, but he found that the buccaneering work had dried up, so he had to take work in a logwood camp. Now, Dampier would write about his travels, and it would actually be those writings and his contributions to natural science that would end up making his fortune, but he didn't know that in the logwood camps, and cutting logwood wasn't cutting it. Not for Dampier and not for the other men in the camps. They would sit around the fires at night, drinking wine and reminiscing about the piles of money that they had once extracted from Spain. As time went on, those... Reminiscences turned into outright planning. 
So this group of cutters, with which William Dampier found himself, turned to John Coxon to serve as admiral. Coxon and four captains among this group of logwood cutters began organizing an expedition. Those other four were Bartholomew Sharp, Peter Harris, Edmund Cook, and Richard Sawkins. And there are actually a lot of other important names in this group, but we're not going to go into all of those today. The two we do need to mention are Basil Ringrose and Lionel Wafer. Both of those men would write accounts of their own about this voyage to come. That means that there would be three men, Dampier, Ringrose, and Wafer, who would write their own accounts of the voyage. There was actually a fourth named John Cox. The more conspiratorially minded might suggest that the presence of these three educated, literate men on this pirate voyage might have something to do with England's extreme interest in the lands that they were going to explore. Not me, of course. I would never suggest that John Coxon was, at this point, an agent of the Crown leading a covert expedition of expert mercenary sailors into lands that England wanted very much to take from Spain. I would never suggest that John Coxon had cut a deal with the government to avoid the hangman after Santa Marta. That's not something I would do. But if that were the case, and I'm not saying it is, really it would only make sense to use quote-unquote pirates, because pirates operate outside the law, and England could not be held diplomatically responsible for the illegal actions of these pirates, enemies of the whole human race. I mean, it's only convenience, I'm sure, that William Dampier would make extremely detailed maps and charts of shorelines and cities and wind patterns, that he would write down the flora and fauna and peoples and military strength of all these places, and that he would go on to become a celebrated London intellectual due to these findings. I'm sure it's mere happenstance that Lionel Wafer would stay with a group of native people in Panama that was fiercely anti-Spanish, and that he would write a book about them, and that those findings would lead to a decades-long alliance with these people who just happened to live in the land where the House of Stuart, currently sitting the throne of England, was eyeing as a new Scottish settlement in the New World. No, they're just pirates. These guys just happened to be there. They're not covert operatives working for the crown, because as we know, the crowned heads of Europe would never use pirates as covert operatives to achieve illicit goals against their enemies. And in case the sarcasm here isn't clear, that's exactly what they did. They did it over and over and over again. They did it with Morgan, and they threw him under the bus. They would do it later on with characters like Captain Kidd, and I am arguing that they are doing it right here with these pirates. See, the diplomatic fallout from the privateers could be huge because privateers were sanctioned by the government. So why not just disown the privateers? You give them a mission, you might give them a purse of gold, and you tell them where to sail and who to attack and send somebody who can write down everything that they see. But if they're captured, then that can't come back to bite the English government. These men were not working for the crown, they were pirates. And that has the added benefit that if they're captured, the government has absolutely zero responsibility to rescue them. These men were on their own. That seems like a great idea, at least from the point of view of the crown. But men on suicide missions are notoriously hard to control, as are pirates. 
Their mission, or their freelance pirate voyage, if you prefer to see it that way, was aimed at the Southern Ocean, what we call the Pacific today. More specifically, it was aimed at Panama. Not just the city, but really the eastern half of the modern nation of Panama. They began their raiding at Portobello, on the north coast of Panama, which we've seen before. Morgan raided it back in the 1660s. But these pirates were joined by Captain Jean Rose and a number of French pirates, who, well, they all blockaded the harbor and stole several ships' worth of plunder from the city. And when the holds were full, they all sailed west, toward an island chain called the Bocas del Toro. That's a large group of islands that are notoriously difficult and dangerous to traverse. The Spanish couldn't follow them in there. They split up the plunder at a place called the Golden Isle, and then these English pirates sailed back east. They sailed past Portobello to the coast of Darien. Now it's Darien that I mean when I say that the House of Stuart was eagerly eyeing this piece of land. Now even though Darien was technically part of the Spanish Empire, the land we know as Darien was not occupied by Europeans. There was no Spanish presence there. And To be fair, it still isn't, really. The people that are the inhabitants of modern-day Darien are the direct descendants of the same people that were there in 1680, the Guna people. There's virtually no European ancestry in Darien. There's almost no mestizo culture there, because Darien is a difficult land. The Pan-American Highway which is intended to traverse the entire Americas from Alaska all the way down to the southern tip of South America, well, it's only broken in one place. Not the Panama Canal, but here in Darien. You have to take a ferry to continue on the Pan-American Highway. Darien is a swampland, and it's all watery jungle. To get around, you have to use canoes. They still do today. And it's filled with deadly, dangerous creatures. In the 1680s, that included the Guna. The Guna were a constant threat to the Spanish in the region, as well as the other native tribes that lived nearby. Their cities were well hidden, and the Guna were deadly to any European that might stumble across them. But on 15 April 1680, John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, William Dampier, Peter Harris, Basil Ringrose, Edmund Cook, Richard Sawkins, Lionel Wafer and around 330 other pirates disembarked to meet with the Guna. They left their ships off the northern coast with a skeleton crew on board, but they marched inland to meet with the man they called King Golden Cap of the Kuna. And I want you to banish any image you might have of European explorers meeting with natives for the first time. The Guna knew the Europeans. They were savvy to all of their European wiles, I mean, King Golden Cap knew who the English were already. He knew the name of King Charles before these men arrived. Perhaps rightfully so, he saw himself as an equal to King Charles. They were both kings, after all. And the Guna, yeah, they used bows and they used arrows, but they had guns, too. These Guna people were fully capable of defending Darien from the pirates. But John Coxon wasn't here to invade. He brought tools, very, very fine iron tools that he brought on this voyage for this very purpose. He brought those as well as plenty of silver to trade and to gift the king. So when they were happened upon by the Guna people, he negotiated 
He told them that he was here to meet with the king, to give him these gifts, and to discuss a treaty. The pirates were led to... And you know, it's kind of hard to talk about native peoples without cliches. The pirates would have called it a camp or a village, but the place that they were taken was the capital of the Guna Nation. You know, there were no roads, there was no stone architecture, but they were taken to the home of a governing body for all of eastern Panama, the center of a trade network that could stretch as far as Colombia or Venezuela or even Nicaragua. They were meeting with a king, and they behaved appropriately for that situation, which was a smart move. They negotiated and traded successfully, and wound up cutting a deal. Much like Henry Morgan, some years earlier, had established an alliance with the Mosquito, John Coxon established this relationship with the Guna. And all of the manuscripts, of course, go into some great detail about the party that took place after the deal was made, and they all remark on how much they enjoyed themselves and the gifts that they indulged in offered by the king, and the one pirate who apparently didn't indulge in any of these gifts was William Dampier, but of course he knew that his wife would read the manuscript. But when all that was said and done, the pirates were led south, deeper into Panama by the Guna General, and they fell on a Spanish fort that guarded a local gold mine. The king's daughter was there. She was being held captive by the general at the fortress. Not only her, but maybe as many as a dozen or two dozen young Guna women were there. They were hostages of a sort, unwilling hostages, and they were there to ensure the docility of the Guna people. However, they were reportedly abused by the Spanish soldiers there. Now, I see no reason to think that that is untrue, but it is possible that this is merely a cover story for the massacre that occurred here at this fortress. Every Spaniard there was killed, and the English probably helped in this, but in all of their writings, they would blame it all on the Guna, you know, these savage Indians who wanted to kill all of the Spaniards. It was totally those guys. We didn't have anything to do with it. And even so, the Spanish totally had it coming. See what they did to all these Guna women? We have to take all of this with a grain of salt. These were stories told by people who were there who might have their own hides in mind, rather than the interest of historical accuracy. But we can verify that the pirates would take boats from this fortress downriver, toward the coast of Panama. Now that voyage was very treacherous, especially when they got close to the ocean and the tide met the river and pushed them back. The pirates all got separated when that happened, but most of them would wind up meeting up on an island in the Bay of Panama. It wasn't a big island, but it was home to a lighthouse and one elderly lighthouse manager. That manager was obviously terrified when hundreds of English barbarians showed up and captured him, but the pirates, well, they didn't light the lighthouse at the proper times. They realized this, though, and they hid all of their boats. A few Spanish ships came to investigate the strange lighthouse behavior, and they were immediately ambushed, and their ships were commandeered by the English pirates. Now, at this point, there is a rift growing within the ranks of the pirates. John Coxon realizes that the men are aimed at attacking the city of Panama, 
and he starts arguing extremely vociferously not to do so. If he were, in fact, an agent of the crown, he very likely had orders not to sack Panama. It was too big and too diplomatically volatile. But it was also very rich, and the men who were sailing under Captain Coxon really wanted to attack Panama. Coxon, in the end, was forced to leave the fleet. He had to sail back to the mainland and leave the fleet of pirates in the hands of Richard Sawkins. Now, John Coxon didn't take any of the educated men of letters with him, so we lose touch with him, and actually we won't see him again until over a year later. But the rest of the pirates did have Dampier and Wafer and Ringrose to tell us all about their exploits. The battle outside Panama was difficult, but the pirates were successful in defeating the Coast Guard of Panama in explosive fashion, and they went on to loot Panama and sail away safely. At first they headed west, but then they headed back east past Panama, and this entire time they were raiding settlements all along the coast. They took plantations and small cities and mining towns and pearl fisheries. They raided anywhere that might have a little bit of money, and they made a lot of money, but they ran into a number of problems. First of all, their ships began to fall apart. They weren't taking care of them, and they didn't want to stop for any place long enough to careen because the Spanish would certainly catch up with them and kill them all terribly. They were always just one step ahead. And the men gave credit to Captain Sawkins for this. He was a capable commander. He was a talented leader in battle, and he was a much-loved leader of the pirates. And he led the pirates on the coast of South America on 22 May 1680, toward a town called Puebla Nueva. The pirates stole canoes and took them upriver, and then they marched overland to surprise the city in the night. But instead of surprising the city, they surprised a guard post that they thought was abandoned. The guards that were there opened fire on the pirates. Now, there were only maybe half a dozen guards at the guard post, so they were quickly killed. However, their gunfire, and the pirates' return fire, alerted the people of Puebla Nueva, who roused the guard and manned the walls. They should, at this point, have turned back and left Puebla Nueva in peace. But Richard Sawkins chose not to do so. They attacked the city at dawn. And in the battle, Captain Sawkins took a musket ball and was killed. Now, this expedition is what they call the Pacific Adventure, and I'm blowing past it with broad brush strokes at lightning speed. This took months and months. But what's important aren't all the cities that they captured or the interpersonal drama that occurred. If you want that, I suggest you go back and listen to those episodes. They're kind of fun. But that's not what we need to know today. Well, we need to know how the command structure of these pirates breaks down to understand what's going to happen after this Pacific adventure. Bartholomew Sharp was the last commander of any real influence among these pirates, and he was voted into power, and the fleet sailed on. But here's the problem. Bartholomew Sharp was a bold idiot. He brought the pirates closer and closer to the center of power and the viceroyalty of Peru. He sailed them toward Lima. He had a 
wild plan to attack Lima, which is an incredibly bad idea because they had a powerful naval force there. But he continually got the pirates into trouble. They had to escape time and time again from the clutches of the Spanish, and the reason he kept getting them into trouble was because he continued sailing south. About a third of the pirates thought this was an incredibly stupid idea, which it was. But Bartholomew Sharp's plan to escape the Southern Ocean was to round the Cape of South America, which was probably a selfish plan. See, he captured a really great ship here in the Southern Ocean, the Trinity, and the only way to get that ship back to the West Indies was to sail it around South America. But that third of the fleet or so didn't want to do that. They voted instead to leave the fleet of Bartholomew Sharp and return to Panama and their ships waiting for them on the north coast. Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose would sail south in Trinity. They would round the Cape and make Brazil, then the Dutch Windward Islands, and then finally make it back to Britain. And it's there that we will meet Ringrose again in 1684, when he's recruited by a pirate named Swan for yet another voyage into the Southern Ocean. But while all that is going on, the pirates John Cook and Edward Davis took command of the ship that was carrying Dampier and Lionel Wafer and the other fifty or so men back toward Panama. They survived a few narrow escapes from the Spanish Coast Guard waiting for them there, but they made it to the mainland. However, they arrived in the rainy season, and they didn't have any Guna guides with them. Not only that, but every one of these pirates had a pack full of Spanish silver. Several men died en route through Panama, and then they encountered a rushing river which blocked their path. A couple of men tried to ford the river, and at least two of them died trying, but finally someone was successful and attached ropes to help the rest get across. Now, even so, a few more men did die in the crossing here. This is an area of Panama that treasure hunters have searched for a long time for the pieces of eight that must be there ever since. But Lionel Wafer was injured while trying to cross the river. He broke his leg and he had to stay behind with two close friends. The rest of the pirates made their way to the Guna City, and then to the north coast of Panama. Now, Wafer and his two associates reached the Guna City as well, some weeks after the rest of the pirates, and Wafer would actually spend months with the Guna. That's when he would write that book that I mentioned, that would influence the attempted establishment of a Scottish colony here. He took advantage of his status as a respected friend of the Guna, as well as his exotic, pale-skinned foreigner status, with which all the women were very interested, and, in fact, he only barely managed to escape marrying the king's daughter, at least, you know, that's what he wrote in his book. But when Cook and Davis and Dampier reached the north coast of Panama, they found that their ships were gone. What do you do in that situation? You've been in the Southern Ocean for months, but now you have no way home. Well, they were lucky here. When Coxon left the fleet before the battle at Panama, he took his ship and sailed away. That was totally fine, but he found that the entire area was filled with a heavy Spanish presence, clearly there to hunt these pirates. So he gathered their attention and led the Spanish away, 
And then, when he met up with the other pirates over in the Bocas del Toro, namely Jean Rose, he sent those pirates to come in and collect the rest of the English fleet. They took all of these ships back to the Bocas del Toro, and then Coxon kind of hung around the coast of Panama, until one day he saw a sign of the pirates who had returned from the Southern Ocean. Now, maybe Coxon is just a great guy. Maybe he felt that it was his duty as their one-time admiral and the man who had taken their ships to ensure that they would return safely home. Or maybe it was his duty to retrieve the manuscripts that two of these men had written for the crown. This voyage took almost a year, but everybody who had survived and who hadn't sailed south made their way back to Tortuga, where they split up the money and the fleet broke up. They found that the climate in the West Indies had changed. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to wait until next time. Next time, we're going to tell the tale of Lauro de Graff, Jan Willems, Mikhail André Zun, Michel de Gramont, and Anne Yulavu. That story, and the way that that story will affect the pirates who took part in the Pacific adventure, will end our look back at the story so far. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has suggested this show to your friends. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight